Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We will be in Genesis 3, concluding Genesis 3, our series really in these foundational chapters for all of Scripture this morning. So with that said, turn with me to Genesis 3. We're going to consider the Word of the Lord together. I will give you a bit of a heads up. We will not only be looking at Genesis 3 this morning, but we will flip over to Exodus 25 and 26. We will flip over to the book of Hebrews, namely in chapter 12, and we will as well look at the end of Revelation. The upside of Genesis and Revelation, though, is you don't have to search too hard for them because they're at the beginning and the end of the Bible. So Genesis chapter 3, we're going to just read verses 22 through 24. We've already considered the creation of man, his dwelling place with God in the garden, The law that God had given him there, the positive command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the temptation of the serpent to eat from that tree, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin after they ate from that tree, God coming in judgment and his curse upon Adam and Eve, and they're believing the gospel promise that God made to them. Now we're going to consider their exile from the garden. So look there with me at verse 22. Then the Lord God said... Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us ask the Spirit's help for understanding. Father, we ask that your Spirit would illumine our minds. We know that your word is high and holy and apart from your Spirit, too high and holy for our understanding in the truest sense not that we would just be able in some way to comprehend or apprehend what you're saying here intellectually but so that we would hear your spirit speaking through the word as the head of the church our Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us for our good and his glory we pray that you would help us to understand this scene of the exile of man from the Garden of Eden, from your holy dwelling place. And we pray that you would help us understand how we might return there. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in his poem, Paradise Lost... John Milton describes the fall of Satan and man and and the loss of paradise. And in book 12, he describes this scene at the end of Genesis 3 of the expulsion of man from the garden. And he says this, they, speaking of Adam and Eve, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with Dreadful faces thronged in fiery arms. Listen, some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, 
where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide, they hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. Adam and Eve lost their happy seat. They had descended from the mountain, from the beautiful garden of Eden. The gate back in is guarded by fiery angels and a flaming sword. They tearfully depart the garden hand in hand, searching for a new place of rest, guided by the Lord together, yet in a solitary, lonely direction. They've lost the restful, happy, bountiful, communal place of Eden in God's presence without sin. They now wander the earth looking for that, but unable to find it. They've descended into the wilderness. They've descended into sin and death. They've been exiled from God's dwelling place as those born of Adam. This is our state as well. We are always searching for a place of rest, yet ever a wanderer. Looking for the paradise of life, yet always in the wilderness of sin and death. Hand in hand with our friends and family, yet ever alone. Desiring a better country, a peaceful land yet always barred from it by our own rebellion and sin. This is because we dwell east of Eden, outside of the presence of God, with whom we are meant to live in eternal communion. And this morning, we're going to look at the beginning of this state of man, And how it will be resolved. And in doing so, we're going to look at first the reason for the exile of man from God's dwelling place in verse 22. Second, we're going to consider the act of exile in verses 23 and 24. And then third, we're going to consider the return from exile. The return from exile. And we're going to consider that, frankly... In the rest of the Bible. But I won't teach every book. Don't worry. So let's look first at the reason for exile. Why are we exiled in verse 22? Look with me at Genesis 3 and verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... This is the last scene in the narrative of man's creation and fall. Really, if we break up Genesis 2, 5 through 3, 24, there are seven scenes, and this is the seventh scene. In language, it matches the first scene, which is in Genesis 2, 5 through 15. Why do I say that? Well, it matches that first scene with reference to two trees. In the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. It matches the first scene in reference to the Garden of Eden. 
in the east. And the work that man is to perform there on the ground and the guarding of it that's supposed to take place. It mentions all that same language. However, that scene in Genesis 2 took some time to lay out. It lays out this beautiful and bountiful paradise in which man dwells with God. This seventh scene at the end of Genesis 3 is dramatically different in that it is abrupt. It's this kind of fast-paced scene of man being expelled from the garden. Look at how verse 22 ends. And the way you've heard me read it sounds odd because it is odd. Look at how it ends. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You guys notice something? It's as if God just cuts off his speech. The conclusion to the sentence just sort of hangs out there in midair. Gordon Winham, an Old Testament scholar of some note, points out that Moses is employing a rare literary device in Hebrew, particularly rare in Hebrew when recording divine speech. Because whenever divine speech is recorded, the prophets are keen to make sure you hear everything that God has to say. And so this is rare in that Moses is cutting off the divine speech before you hear the conclusion of it. And Wenham argues that Moses is doing so to emphasize the speed of God's action in expelling man from the garden. You sort of should know what's coming next. The effect on the reader is that God has hardly finished speaking before he's driven man out of the garden. But why does he drive him out? Look at verse 22 again. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now here's a question that immediately comes to my mind. Why are Adam and Eve exiled for, in this text, being like God? Why are they exiled for being like God? Man, as an image bearer of God, was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So now why is he exiled for being like God? Well, we need to read the whole phrase. The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. You might say, but that causes a whole bunch of other questions. It should at least. First, question that comes to my mind is, didn't Adam and Eve already know good and evil in Genesis 2? Why do I ask that? Well, they're given a command. They know God's law, both his moral law that we see reflected in the Ten Commandments, and his positive law, this Direct command, they would not know if God had not spoken it to them in special revelation. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. If you eat of it, you will surely die. They knew that command, and they knew it was good to keep God's law. They knew it was evil to break God's law. They must know, in some sense anyway, good and evil in order to understand a command and its penalty, or a covenant and its reward. 
So my next question then is, then what does it mean that they became like God in knowing good and evil? Well, it seems to mean that Adam and Eve now know evil by participation in it. They know evil by personal experience of it. They knew the good by participation in Genesis 2. And they knew the evil, if you will, intellectually, conceptually. They knew, That's bad. Don't do that. But not by participation. They had never personally participated in evil. In Genesis 2, they're still obeying God's voice. But in Genesis 3, they listen to the voice of the serpent and they disobey God's voice. Now, if you just heard what I said, that ought to bring up another question for you. A really sort of troubling question for you. If they're now participating in sin and evil experientially, then how does that make them like God? God has never participated in evil. He's not the author of evil. Listen, evil is the privation of the good. And God is the good. So God can't be deprived of the good in some way. He is good. Evil is disobedience against God's law. God cannot know evil by participation in it in this way. Yet there is an analogy being made. You know how you know an analogy? Like God, analogy. There's an analogy being made between God's knowing good and evil and man's knowing good and evil. So how do God and Adam know good and evil in an analogous way? I think, now this is where I want to be careful, sort of be fearful not to trod where even the angels won't trod, but I just want to be careful here. I think the best understanding of the text is this is a reference to the fact and I'm going to tease this out more, but just this is the first part of it. This is a reference to the fact that God is the judge of good and evil. He is the sovereign giver of the law and the judge of what is good and evil. And now Adam has usurped that judgment to himself. Adam has asserted his own autonomous self-rule. His own autonomous judgment of what is good and evil. Adam is trying, in other words, to make himself like God in this way, which is actually the wicked rebellion of the creature. In other words, what I'm saying is that God is not giving him a compliment here. God is actually engaging in a kind of divine irony. It's God mocking man. God is mocking how unlike God the man has become. How foolish and wicked his supposed wisdom and knowledge are. He is mocking his claim of autonomy, his so-called God-likeness. There's nothing like God in running and hiding behind bushes in the garden, in participating in wickedness. It's almost as if you can hear Psalm 2 reverberating in the background why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away 
their cords from us. Now listen, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The man has forfeited every right to take and eat from the tree of life precisely because he has become such a dishonest reflection of the image of God. Matthew Henry restates the verse as sarcasm. Listen to how Matthew Henry Puritan commentator restates this verse as sarcasm. He says this. You can hear the dripping sarcasm. A goodly God he makes, does he not? See what he has got, what preferments, what advantages by eating forbidden fruit. Running and hiding, cowering in fear. Guilty, sinful, cursed. Friends, with every whisper, with every whisper, sin beckons you to replace God's voice with your own. The world, the flesh, and the devil all sing the sweet-sounding song of human autonomy. You do you. Be yourself. Do what makes you happy. God would want you to be happy. I know that God says that forbidden fruit is not good, but doesn't it look delightful and pleasurable? I know that God says that forbidden fruit will kill you, but doesn't it look like it will give you life and satisfaction? I know that God says the forbidden fruit is foolish to eat, but doesn't it look like it would be unwise to turn it away? Every time we dismiss the voice of God for our own, we are asserting our own autonomy. We are overthrowing his rightful rule and replacing him with ourselves. That's why I told you a few weeks ago that R.C. Sproul said that sin is cosmic treason. In every instance, no matter how small and harmless we believe the sin to be, even when we think the sin is good for us in some way, it is rebellion against the King of Kings. Every crude joke, every demeaning slight, every lustful glance, every dishonest comment, every half-truth masquerading as the whole truth, every word of gossip or slander, every disobedience to God's moral law the one we naturally know reflected in the Ten Commandments, and God's positive law, the law he's laid down for his church in the New Covenant. Every disobedience, every lack of faith, every ingratitude, every complaint, every disobedience to appointed authority, every confusion of God's order, every entanglement that supplants the Lord with another, Every single sin is you eating the forbidden fruit. It's you 
rebelling against the Creator. It's cosmic treason against our holy and sovereign Lord. Every single one. And God cannot tolerate such rebellion. He will not countenance such attempts at usurping his rule. He will not. Thus, he casts the man out of his holy presence. And this leads to our second point. Look there, the act of exile. Look at Genesis 3, 23 first. The act of exile we're going to find in both of these verses, 23 and 24, but let's look verse 23 first. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. This word sent is from the same Hebrew word as the word for reach out in verse 22. Lest he reach out and take the fruit, the Lord God sent him out. It's a play on words again. Adam's no longer to reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life. Rather, he is sent out of the garden. And he is sent out to work the ground from which he was taken. There's an emphasis here on Adam being from the ground, if you will, and now working the ground to which he will return. An emphasis on his death. But the exile intensifies in verse 24. Look at verse 24. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is interesting. God sent out in verse 23 is strengthened by God drove out in verse 24. And you know when we see these two Hebrew verbs together again? In Exodus 6.1 when God tells Moses, Pharaoh will send you out. In fact, Pharaoh will drive you out of Egypt. And again in Exodus 11.1 when he's told that after the plague of the firstborn, Pharaoh will send you out. In fact, he will drive you out. In other words, there is a driving you out of this land with extreme prejudice kind of language happening here. It's not just a, hey, go on your merry way. It's a get out of here. Pharaoh will want to send them out, will want to drive them out. God is doing the same. God wants to and will and does run man out of his indwelling presence. Look again at verse 24. And at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Note the language here. First note the language, and at the east of the garden. The only entrance to the Garden of Eden is in the east. That's the same, by the way, with the tabernacle. That's the same with the temple. One entrance at the east. Remember I told you that the garden is a garden temple in which man, as the priest, who is to serve and guard in that temple, that that garden temple is then going to be seen again in the tabernacle. And in the temple, where God dwells with man there, and the priest 
enters. You enter the temple from the east. You enter the Garden of Eden from the east. The emphasis here is that this is the garden temple where God dwells and man may not enter it again. Second, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword. Look there. The east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way. Now this word placed is literally caused the cherubim to camp. Cherubim is just plural of cherubs. So you imagine there's two of these cherubs, I'll talk about them in a minute, who were there guarding the way in, one on each side of the entrance, with the flaming sword between them, and it's the language that he caused them to camp there. Which you see that kind of language with regard to God in the tabernacle in Exodus 25.8. He's caused to camp at the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. The Lord has caused the cherubim to camp in the garden temple at the east entrance. The only place you might enter. And the kind of angel here is not incidental. It's not just like God really likes cherubs, so he put them there. He does really like cherubs, but that's not the point. He created them, he loves them. Cherubs are those angels who throughout Scripture are guarding God's dwelling. Particularly his throne. For example, in Ezekiel, we see God riding a chariot of fire. And that chariot of fire is, in some sense, composed of fiery cherubim. But most important for our purposes this morning, we see the cherubim in two key places in the Exodus. Two key places in the Exodus. The first place we see the cherubim is in making up, they actually make up the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, which contains God's holy law. This is the seat upon which the blood of atonement must be sprinkled before man can enter into the Holy of Holies to the place where God glory has entered to dwell so look at exodus 25 keep your hand in genesis 3 look at exodus 25 and verse 18 i'll start at verse 17 really but exodus 25 and verse 17 you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold two cubits and a half shall be its length a cubit is 18 inches, so you have 36 inches, two cubits, and then a half of 18 is nine more, so you guys can do the math. I'm at the end of my math skills. So we keep going. And a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim On its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony. That is the Mosaic covenant, particularly the tablets of stone that make up the Ten Commandments, that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, From between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God will meet with Israel and speak with Israel there 
above the mercy seat. But the only way God will meet with Israel and speak with Israel there above the mercy seat is when the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, which he does once a year, and after making atonement for his own sin, he enters with the atonement for the sin of the people, and he casts it on the mercy seat so that he might dwell in the place where God is. And if he enters there in an unworthy manner, he will be struck dead. Now the second place that we see the cherubim is stitched into the curtain. That is between the holy place and the holy of holies. So look at Exodus chapter 26. The, by the way, the cherubim are stitched on curtains all within the tabernacle. But I want to look at this particular curtain. Look at Exodus 26 and verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place which the priests entered regularly to deal with the show, bread, the candles, etc. Holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, where they could only go once a year on the day of atonement. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle and we get into some more details. Israel's high priest must go through the cherubim that guard the way into the Holy of Holies on that curtain, on that veil. He must go through the cherubim and with the blood of atonement and cast the blood of the atonement on the mercy seat overseen by the cherubs if Israel ever hopes to approach where God dwells and to hear from him there. And this but once a year. And I remind you what happened if the high priest entered into that place between those cherubim into the Holy of Holies without the blood of the atonement for himself and the people, he would die. He would die. And this ties us back to Genesis 3.24. Remember that phrase in Genesis 3.24? And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The flaming sword is an instrument of judgment and death. If you try to enter God's tabernacle, God's holy dwelling place, you will be cut down for your sin. God will shed your blood. The wages of sin is death. And this drives us to that third detail I want to pick up, to guard. Notice that phrase, to guard the way to the tree of life. Man was meant to guard the garden temple where God dwells. In fact, in Genesis 2.15 where it says, you shall work it and keep it, 
that word keep it is the same Hebrew word for guard it that we see here with the cherubs and the flaming sword. Man was meant to guard the garden temple where God dwells. Man was meant to keep out everything that is unclean and unholy. Now, in a a kind of ironic tragedy, man is the unholy and unclean thing that must be kept out. Man no longer enters God's dwelling place and eats from the tree of life and lives forever with God. So herein is the problem of man. He is ejected from the garden from God's dwelling place. This is the picture of exile as death. As death. That's why they descend the mountain into the grave. That's why they go down into Egypt, that place of the dead, obsessed with death, and come up out of Egypt in the Exodus. Man is being cast down the mountain into the wilderness, separated from God, under his wrath, unable to dwell with him, and doomed to return to the dust. Man no longer dwells with God. This is the great tragedy of the Bible story. The greatest loss in human history. But here's a question that this might beg for you. Why are Adam and Eve exiled? Given that I said last week, God had forgiven their sins. He had made a gospel promise to them of the seed of the woman to come. They believed that promise. And God clothed them with skins of animals, having cut the animals. So if they're forgiven their sins, clothed of their uncleanness, then why are they still exiled? Did I not say last week they trusted in Christ and were saved? Is it not true that as those who trust in Christ and are saved, trusting in the seed of the woman, the Christ to come, they could draw near to God in Christ? Now, this is where we need to be careful not to confuse two concepts I want to give you terms for you may have never heard. One is ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. In other words, how the grace of God in Christ is personally appropriated by us, applied to us. And the other is historia salutis, or the history of salvation, how the story of God sending his son to redeem us is progressively unfolded from Genesis 3.15 in this promise until it develops to the coming of Christ and his return and the consummation of all things. We don't want to confuse those things. Adam and Eve are the parents of all mankind. And the second Adam, the Christ, has not yet come. And he has not yet ascended to God's dwelling place. Adam is the federal head. Remember I told you this? The representative of all mankind. He represents us all in his exile from the garden. He is cast into the wilderness, and so are we. Meredith Klein, an Old Testament scholar who's since gone to be with the Lord, said this. In this episode, they were once more dealt with, in Adam and Eve, 
were months more dealt with in their capacity as representatives of the generality of mankind now fallen. Their removal from the garden openly marked the passage from the original normal state of beatitude under the creator's favor to the abnormal state of the world under the curse which had resulted from man's rebellion against the covenant. See, while Adam and Eve had personally appropriated the benefits of Christ's atonement, that era of redemptive history in which the Christ comes and does his work to atone for us, to resurrect, to ascend to God's right hand, has not yet come. Now, this is going to be the driving story of the Bible after Genesis 3. You guys recognize that. Man is going to be looking for the second Adam, the seed of the woman, who will come and return us back to the garden temple to dwell with the Lord God. To quote another Old Testament scholar and biblical theologian, Michael Morales, this expulsion from the divine presence is the central tragic event that drives the history of redemption. Determining and shaping the ensuing biblical narrative. Indeed, all the drama of Scripture, all the drama of Scripture is found in relation to this singular point of focus. What is that singular point of focus? Yahweh's opening up the way for humanity to dwell in his presence once more. And this leads me to our final point this morning. The return from exile. The return from exile. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to leave you east of Eden. (laughs) Under the curse of the law. Under the conviction of sin. With no hope. I want you to hear how we re-enter the garden temple. God gave Israel a typological re-entry into the tabernacle and the temple. That's what we just read about. Gave them a tabernacle or a temple mirroring the mountain of Eden, if you will. Ezekiel 28, remember, Eden is a mountain. Mirroring that mountain where God dwells with man. And the high priest would carry the atoning sacrifice, that animal that had been cut down, whose blood had been shed, through the cherubim guarding the entrance. The high priest would then cast that animal blood on the mercy seat. The high priest would thus enter the garden temple on behalf of Israel as its representative where God dwells once again. But this only happened once a year. And it had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. So Israel waited For the Christ, the seed of the woman, who would fulfill this fully and finally. And when the New Testament comes, we hear this glorious news. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Christ came, born of woman, born under the law. He was tempted in every way as we are, as Adam was, 
as Israel was, yet without sin. He kept God's law perfectly, unlike Adam, unlike Israel, and unlike us. Moreover, Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He went to the cross and died for our sins. At the cross, the sword that guarded the way to the garden fell on Christ. And what happened when that sword fell? The veil in the temple was torn in two. And the cherubim that guarded the way were separated from one another. And Christ as the second Adam, our representative, entered into God's holy dwelling place permanently. The curtain in the temple split. Further, Christ resurrected from the dead, being vindicated as holy, innocent, and undefiled. The grave could not hold him for death is not his just reward, it's our just reward. Rather, he conquered sin and death in his resurrection, and he ascended to the true holy of holies in heaven. Jesus, Hebrews 6, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf into the inner place behind the curtain. And what did he do there? He presented the blood of atonement and cast it on the mercy seat, and he sat down. He is the better sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice which does not ever need to be repeated. He is the better high priest, the one who has no sin of his own, the one who can ascend the mountain of God fully and finally, present his atoning sacrifice, and sit down after the completion of his work. He is the true and better Israel, the true and better Adam. He has secured for us an eternal redemption as he has put away all sin by the sacrifice of himself. And when Christ had offered once for all a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. Friends, Christ has completed the work. You cannot return to God's dwelling place, to the garden temple, apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Have you cast yourself upon him for salvation from the judgment due to you for your sins? Now, Sovereign Grace, there is one final question for those of us who have trusted in Christ that springs up, and it has a couple little sub-questions for me. Here's the question. If this is true, why do we still suffer the consequences of sin in this life? If it's been paid in full, why do we still suffer the consequences of sin in this life? Please understand this, Sovereign Grace. Just because God has forgiven your sins, and that is no light matter, and made you new, gloriously good news, does not mean that all the consequences of sin in this present life have gone away. 
your sin and its consequences often continue to cling to you and fight against you. You are still a Christian living in the wilderness outside the garden temple. And if that's true, then how are we to think about the fact that though Christ has entered the garden temple, we still seem stuck out here in the wilderness? Well, let me begin by saying that Christ has inaugurated the kingdom of God, but he has not consummated the kingdom. What do I mean? I mean that Christ's kingdom has begun. He is seated on the throne in heaven, and all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. He is our great high priest, our atoning sacrifice, and he is ever interceding for us. He has sent his spirit to unite us to him through faith. The spirit has come to apply the work of Christ to us, to unite us to his person. So we can say that not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, we are saved from the power of sin. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. If you're trusting in Christ, you have been born again, and you are spiritually resurrected from the dead. You have eternal life already. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are citizens of heaven. You are presently seated with Christ in heavenly places. Forgiveness of sins, justification, the declaration of righteousness, and sanctification are all presently yours. Christ is your life. What is more, while you live in the wilderness of this world, your worship is better than the Old Testament saints received. The form of worship we received is better. Our worship has attended with less outward glory, but it has far greater inward efficacy. You now get to enjoy a taste. You get to enjoy a taste of the consummation of the kingdom. Every time we gather on the Lord's Day for corporate worship, you get a taste of the consummation of the kingdom. Friends, what is one of the driving points of the book of Hebrews? Which, if you haven't noticed, I've just been quoting from a lot. What is one of the driving points of the book of Hebrews? It's God telling Jewish Christians, largely Jewish Christians, not to go back to the Old Testament typical worship. Like that, those types of shadows presented the reality to you, but they presented the reality to you in types and shadows. Those priests and sacrifices if you will, gave you the grace of Christ through faith, but they did so in types and shadows. But now the Christ has come. The great high priest has come. The atoning sacrifice has come. We no longer come to the smells and bells of temples, orchestras, sacrifices, and well-adorned priests. We no longer come to the mountain that cannot be touched because we no longer have to stay far away from the Lord. Rather, we are now commanded to draw near to the Lord. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. He's just been comparing Mount Sinai, the mountain we could not touch where God dwelled because of our sin, the mountain where we were afraid and had to stay away. He now comes to Mount Zion, 
Mount Zion being the heavenly mountain. In other words, dwelling with God. Look what he says in chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come. That, by the way, is a perfect in the Greek, a completed past action that has ongoing consequences. You have come. Not you will someday come. You have come. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. Do you, do you understand this language? You've come to heaven. You're there with the angels who are in festal gathering. They're present to worship. You're there with the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. That is the church Catholic or universal. And you've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I think that's speaking to the believers who've already died and are with the Lord and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and a sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried for justice. Jesus' blood cries mercy. We have come, we have come to the Holy of Holies. I don't know, Sovereign Grace, do you hear what's happening in corporate worship? It's not so much that Christ descends to us by the Spirit, as much as it is we ascend to him by the Spirit. And he speaks to us there, Hebrews 2. And he leads us in song there. And he offers himself to us for our sanctification sacramentally there. Now this is only a taste. We're still living all week long in the wilderness looking forward to consummate glory. And because this is only a taste... We still await Christ's return. We continue to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the instruments of our battle are the word of God, prayer, and the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And our compatriots in the battle are our fellow believers, the church. We must not lose sight of that. I don't know what you think happens when you gather with Christ's people for corporate worship, but you need to understand that when you gather with Christ's people for corporate worship on the Lord's day, Christ's people, by the Spirit, ascend to heaven. And hear from Christ there. And are sanctified by Christ there. You might not feel that. I don't often feel it. It isn't something found in Jordan coming up here and leading the music in such a way that he takes you to the heights and depths of emotion like the Eagles can at a concert. That isn't where it's found. It's found in the objective reality that Christ has gone as your forerunner behind the veil and by the Spirit carries you there with him. We must not lose sight of that. We must continue to strive to enter our final rest, trusting in Christ and his word. And what is that final rest? It's a return to the garden temple dwelling with God, but only better this time in that there is no more potential for a fall into sin. We are immutably holy and righteous in resurrected bodies 
living with God forever. I want you to see the final consummation. We'll end with reading that. Look at Revelation chapter 21, and I'm going to take two selections of it. Revelation chapter 21. Let me take you back into the garden temple, and we'll pray. First, we'll read one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, that place of death, was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Go down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. In other words, you have no fear of enemies coming in. No need to guard it any longer. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Sovereign grace, it is for this great day that we await and for which we pray. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your son would return soon. That this journey, this pilgrimage in the wilderness that we presently live in, in this old creation, this sinful world, will come to an end. And we will dwell with him in the new heavens and new earth and eat from the tree of life forever. We ask that you would make it so that your son would return soon. And Father, we ask that for as long as he tarries, until he comes, may we strive to enter that rest which is ours in Christ alone. May we not forsake the gathering ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. 
but seek for how we might stir one another up to love and good works. Father, we pray that you would preserve us to the end. By the Spirit, we trust that your Son, who has taken us into his hand, will not let us go, that no one can snatch us from your hand nor his. And we look forward to his soon coming return. In Jesus' name, amen.